that's a bit of an artificial market. So why do people keep lending money to the spendthrift? And do they really deserve to be paid back at this point, given the fiscal realities of how Congress and FedGov operates? I would argue that they do not deserve to be paid back. In other words, they've made a bad investment and they, not the taxpayers or the new inhabitants of a newly seceded territory, ought to be on the hook for that. So, you know, a lot of this is political more than mechanical. I think that is true. I think Ryan's point is valid there. But the idea that it's unthinkable, look, in 1982, if you were in Moscow or in Washington and saying that 10 years from now, the USSR will be no more, you would have been absolutely laughed out of the room. And yet look what happened. The Tom Woods Show, episode 2290. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy The Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught, with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tom Woods Show. As a hybrid episode, it is also an episode of the Human Action Podcast of the Mises Institute, hosted by our guest, I suppose, Jeff Deist here from the Mises Institute, president of the Mises Institute. And you may think, wait a minute, if this is both a human action podcast episode and a Tom Woods show episode, is what's really happening here that both of these podcast hosts just got lazy this week and decided to do one fewer episode? No. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) Anyway, there's a lot to talk about, but Jeff, you had a blog post I want to make some mention of about money and monetary policy, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I don't know the details of what happened. But I do know that our friend Gene Epstein at his Soho Forum had a debate recently, just days ago, on the subject of national Mm -hmm. divorce. Our friend Ryan McMakin was supposed to be arguing in favor, but he wasn't able to attend. So they got Frank Buckley, who's a pretty good second best choice to stand in for that position. But this has become, I think, in part because Marjorie Taylor Greene keeps mentioning national divorce, and that's making everybody angry because it's treason to mention national divorce and how dare she and she should be impeached. But it's got the term out there and people are talking about it. And it's funny the way they talk about it. Like, it's so funny what you're allowed to talk about or conceive of in the U.S. and what is inconceivable. Now, it's okay for Soviet republics to break off. No problemo. It's no problem for Norway and Sweden to split apart. No problemo. But there's some kind of divinely given shape and size of the United States that makes it not subject to these rules of more mundane countries. You know, we are one indivisible. It's idolatry. And there's no utilitarian analysis here of is the union doing us any good in the first place? It's all this mysticism. Well, it is distressing to see the extent to which even raising the question is pounced upon. I think you said that political arrangements exist to serve us, not the other way around. So that's for starters. The idea that people cannot peaceably walk away from a political arrangement, if that's your belief that they cannot, then there's a lot of things we might call you, but one of them is not liberal. Yeah. Right? You're not a liberal if you deny people the right to peacefully exit or alter a political arrangement. Point blank. 
And people who call themselves liberals need to go back and read Mises, especially liberalism and nation state and economy to understand what he was getting at. Now, there are some differences, I think, between Soviet balkanization, between Europe and America. We do have a common language here. We have a different history. But nonetheless, the idea that 330 million far-flung people, we have manifest destiny, westward expansion, it's got to be 50. 50 states is a nice round number, and that's the way it's got to be forever and ever. Well, all we have to do is look at a map of Europe from the 1800s to see how radically different things are today. And as a matter of fact, how radically new the current map of Europe is. And it changed at several points throughout the 20th century, but certainly after World War I and after World War II, it changed dramatically. So nothing's set in stone. I think America, in some sense, will break up or alter radically, even if that's just aggressive federalism. But people fret an awful lot about the geography. In other words, the issues surrounding red and blue areas, we don't have the neat dividing line of the Mason-Dixon line or something like that, like we've had in previous parts of American history. We have blue cities within red states. We have county by county. We have urban versus rural. So people say there's no good, neat lines. There's also problems, geographic problems with respect to federal land, with respect to federal military bases. But what I worry about is more on the economic side. In other words, we have a national currency known as the dollar. We have a national debt, which is now approaching $32 trillion. And we have federal entitlements, which basically are Social Security and Medicare. And that's where some of the really thorny questions of how to break up or how to divvy that up might raise their ugly heads. But again, look, I think this change is inevitable. The question is whether we're going at it or approaching it with an open mind and a peaceable mind, as opposed to just dismissing it out of hand, calling it treason, which is clearly, Ridiculous. plainly absurd. Yeah. And then saying, if you try to do this, by the way, we'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's generally not a good opening gambit for negotiations. But look, I understand, don't get me wrong, I don't think this is imminent. I understand that left progressives will never yield an inch of turf. But the reason they will never yield is because they have a sense of inevitability. They have a sense that the route is on. And they're going to control everything. It's going to be a uniparty America. So why should they give up even an inch of ground, Tom? But you know what? When Trump came along and shattered their sense of inevitability by, against all odds, defeating Hillary Clinton, and that sense of progressive inevitability was shaken, deeply shaken. We saw the left talking about this. We saw the left talking about sanctuary cities. There's an article in The Nation called Blue Exit. It's basically saying, oh, these racist retrograde states, we have to abandon them now. So a lot of the rhetoric surrounding secession tends to involve whether you're currently prevailing or not politically. So right now, progressives say secession is for losers. That's how you know progressives actually are in charge, despite all of their friends in the media making it constantly seem like they're the underdogs. And they're the martyrs and they're the people fighting the power. We know progressives are in charge because progressives attack secession as for losers. We know progressives are in charge because progressives no longer want the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment is for losers. The First Amendment is for underdogs. Secession is for losers and underdogs. Progressives currently view themselves as neither. So there's an interesting subcurrent there. But a couple more punches in the nose in the form of events like Brexit or Trump, might convince some more thoughtful progressives to say, hey, there's more of these deplorables than we thought, and they're more stubborn than we thought. And 
they're living longer than we thought. And the idea that America is going to be minority white, I think that's true, but it might reach a point where the fall off in the white percentage of the population gets stuck somewhere between 40 and 50% and doesn't decline anymore after that. So you're still dealing with perhaps the largest minority in the country. So there's all kinds of things going on here that could affect this debate. So what progressives are saying today is different from what they were saying in 2016. I would point out, by the way, not that it's as significant as the progressive view on this, but there are some, let's say, traditionalist or right-wing voices that view national divorce as a kind of surrender. I was just talking to one on Twitter today who was accusing me of, believe it or not, utopianism because I favored national divorce. And I thought, what could possibly be more utopian than thinking this absolutely irreformable regime could be fixed given the entrenched interests that are embedded within it, given you think about all the different federal agencies and every one of them is filled with people whose livelihoods depend on the perpetuation of the current system. It is beyond unlikely that anything will ever budge there. Whereas I'll grant you, national divorce seems unlikely right now. But a lot of things the left did seemed unlikely until they started talking about them. And the idea that it would be utopian to say, maybe we shouldn't keep trying to build something that can't possibly work. Or I want to get out from under a regime that no matter what kind of person is in power, seems to be dead set against me and everything I stand for. I'd like to try something different instead of doing the same thing over and over again. Now, meanwhile, I do want to talk, because you were mentioning the financial side of this. Now, our friend Ryan McMakin has talked about that also, because there are other cases of countries like, for example, Czechoslovakia with the Czech Republic and Slovakia. They had to deal with these kinds of issues, too. And there are likewise other cases. And the general way they've done it is either they've looked at the GDP of each region, and then they've apportioned Mm -hmm. the debt accordingly, or they've done it by population. In other words, yeah, it's a thorny issue, but it's not absolutely impossible. Where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, you figure something like that out. You could also figure out whatever, common properties. You just negotiate that. The issue is the principle of the thing. In principle, can we have more self-government? And yes, if there are blue cities in red states, then there should be more autonomy for the red portions and let the city, you know, if the city wants to do suicidal things, then, you know, they're going to learn their own lesson. But the answer is just more decentralization. Well, I think the near term is clearly a matter of more aggressive federalism. And I think we're going to see this inevitably, just as blue states and cities claim sanctuary status against things like immigration rules. You'll see red states do this. And we forget sometimes that the U.S. federal government is an empire with respect to the 50 states too, not just with respect to Iraq and Afghanistan or trying to bully China about Taiwan or whatever. It's also an empire with regard to the 50 states, which exist very neatly along geographic lines, which already have legislatures, which already have all kinds of infrastructure for self-governance. So state lines are probably the most sensible or practicable options among us. Now, the problem, of course, is that there would be disenfranchised people within those various states. And provided they were given an opportunity to leave in some scenario without requiring a passport or anything, I mean, there are disenfranchised people in California right now who feel they're living in occupied territory. There are disenfranchised liberals, left progressives in the state of Alabama who feel entirely put upon. So it's not like that's new for starters. 
And in terms of apportioning things and divvying things up, I think you have to say, first of all, what can states do to create currency or to facilitate trade? I think most states would recognize the benefit of free trade between the former U.S. states. And I think with respect to national debt, I mean, if you read Rothbard, clearly we ought to be repudiating that to begin with. Anybody who lends Uncle Sam money deserves to lose it. I mean, that's a terrible thing to do. And the idea that everyone just buys U.S. Treasury debt and allows Uncle Sam to spend beyond what he takes in in taxes is crazy. That's like, take the worst relative you have, the most lazy, drunken, spendthrift relative you have, who literally spends twice his income or more year after year after year and stubbornly refuses to change his ways. As a matter of fact, doubles and triples down on his ways and says his ways make sense, that deficits don't matter. At some point, you'd probably stop giving that relative more money, right? But we do the opposite here. And so all across the world, sovereign governments, all across the world, central banks, all across the world, big hedge funds, pension funds, endowment funds, all invest, sometimes as required by their own charters, all invest in U.S. Treasury debt. So there's this market, which I would argue is somewhat artificial. And clearly it's artificial when the Fed itself guarantees implicitly that it'll serve as the backstop for U.S. Federal Treasury issuance by buying up in QE treasury debt in the next round of bank failures, let's say. That's a bit of an artificial market. So why do people keep lending money to the spendthrift? And do they really deserve to be paid back at this point, given the fiscal realities of how Congress and FedGov operates? I would argue that they do not deserve to be paid back. In other words, they've made a bad investment and they, not the taxpayers or the new inhabitants of a newly seceded territory, ought to be on the hook for that. So, you know, a lot of this is political more than mechanical. I think that is true. I think Ryan's point is valid there. But the idea that it's unthinkable, look, In 1982, if you were in Moscow or in Washington and saying that 10 years from now, the USSR will be no more, you would have been absolutely laughed out of the room. And yet look what happened. Yeah, it's true. Well, here's the situation we have in the US at the moment. Given the hysterical reaction to talking about national divorce, it just calls to mind that we have an elite that thinks it is entitled to direct society. And that includes in effect, implicitly anyway, granting permission to discuss certain things. They're going to tell us what the agenda is. You know, our agenda is we're going to talk about taxes, but the positions you're allowed to take are, should the tax rate be here or here? That's the conversation you're allowed to have. Or whatever the crazy left-wing fad of the moment is, you're allowed to argue within that little range of opinion. But if you talk about national divorce, which Thomas Jefferson would have had absolutely no problem with whatsoever, as he made clear repeatedly, at least in principle, as an idea in principle, well, that's not a lot. The elites haven't given you permission to talk about that. We're the ones who are entitled to direct the quote unquote national conversation. Well, that spills over into public health because we're entitled to because we're the experts. So we'll tell you, you need to wear a mask and stay in your house and whatever. Even if none of this does any good and we can all see that, We're entitled to that. We have letters after our name and we're entitled to tell you people how to live. Or when it comes to energy or heating your home, we're going to tell you how you can do that and how much money you're going to spend on it. We certainly, if you're going to educate your kids, well, we're going to, you know, ideally we want to have a quote unquote public school apparatus that's going to shove certain ideas into the brains of your kids. So it's all this elite entitlement 
that because I'm so-and-so and you're just a stupid rube, you have to sit there and take it and you can't talk about issues that we haven't approved. You can't educate your kids in ways we disapprove of. Or at the very least, in our schools that we run, you better believe we're going to pick textbooks that teach the exact opposite of what you believe and we're going to enjoy doing it. This is what a lot of people are starting to try to break free from. And I would say in this arrangement where the elites feel entitled to run things, a great example of it is the monetary system itself, that if you leave money to its own devices, well, you're going to get bank panics and depressions. And so we need scientific management of the money, once again, by alleged experts, so that you stupid rubes can at least have a stable economy. Now, we may have our issues with George Selgin, but years ago, he gave a paper at the Mises Institute that just knocked my socks off, where he just impartially evaluated the actual record of the Federal Reserve System, not the mythology that we had wildcat banking and then the Federal Reserve came along and everything got into ship shape. This is just a myth. There's just nothing to this at all. And he just absolutely cut right through it. But it's the kind of myth that every school teacher and every elite wants to perpetuate because they want this kind of monetary system. It's a monetary system that helps them direct society and resources into the directions they want them directed into. Well, it's true. And I think a lot of the obfuscation is intentional. The idea that money isn't something simple, that it's something we need a policy for. Actually, around here we say something for which we need a policy, right? I just put the prepositions at the end. <laughs> I gave up on that rule. But it's kind of funny how gold worked really well as universally accepted money for a long time without all these central banks, and more importantly, without the Wharton, Columbia, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge crowd telling us how money's going to work and what interest rates should be. And so that's really fascinating to me, this dichotomy between money and monetary policy, because I think most people understand money on a conceptual level. And in that recent blog post you referenced earlier, you know, I wrote about how shopkeepers and merchants and traders across time, the Silk Road, for example, they all had to deal with different kinds of money and exchange it quickly. And people still do that today in places like Turkey and Zimbabwe. And so people understand money and its utility and sort of how it flows amongst them. And all it is at the end of the day is a simple technology to allow us to escape the problems of barter, right? Barter would be really tough in a modern society. It'd be awfully hard for us to just exchange actual physical stuff all day that we had around our house for the stuff we wanted. So the world came up with money to solve that. It's not that hard to understand. So how does money have value? Well, ideally, it has value because it has certain properties. It maintains value. It's widely accepted as a medium of exchange. And with gold, which is a very unique type of technology, it has certain properties which make it almost impossible to destroy. There was gold can be melted down, but a lot like energy, it never really goes away. So people over time said, well, this stuff doesn't rust. It doesn't melt. It doesn't liquefy. It doesn't stain. So let's use that. Oh, okay. And look, the market decided that and something better could come along. Bitcoiners claim, for example, that something better has come along. That's a separate debate. But nonetheless, we don't need governments. We don't need central bankers. And average people, shopkeepers, can understand money at that conceptual level. And that's all that's required. But this idea that we need a professional financial class exists because we have political money. 
because money has become something other than the simple medium of exchange, the simple technology we need to overcome barter. It has become a political tool. And in the case of the United States and our dollar, it has become an instrument of politics and really an instrument of force, an instrument of imperialism in many ways. So we get money unbound from any backing by gold. We get monetary policy, so-called, unhinged by any restraints. Then we get fiscal policy, which is untethered to tax revenue. So you put all this in a blender and the dollar becomes this sort of mysterious thing that needs to be operated. And gosh, we need to worry about the Fed funds rate and we need to worry about the money supply and we need to worry about the lending between banks and we need to worry about treasury debt and this and that. And so money has become very, very complex. And they were so good at making it complex that even amongst economists, even amongst economists, monetary policy was considered a particularly like wonkish back burner discipline or specialty. So it really wasn't until arguably Ron Paul came along and then the tremendous housing crash and the Lehman Brothers collapse of 2007 happened that interest in monetary policy became a much hotter field. And so now we have common everyday people, reasonably educated, reasonably intelligent lay people having the audacity to want to know something about monetary policy because it turns out it affects them when CPI is 8 or 9% and their annual raise at work is 2%. It turns out that they want to know a little bit about that and they perhaps want to educate themselves against all the political promises, against all the nonsense we hear from central bankers. So there is this technocratic expertise involved in monetary policy, which I think is just completely BS. I think almost all of monetary policy, in fact, almost all of so-called macroeconomics is complete nonsense. And that this stuff is actually far simpler than advertised. So I would love to see, while we're on the subject of this great awakening, these pivots happening in American society, I would love to see millions and millions of average Americans actually learning about money and questioning the Fed, and the monetary system, I think that is maybe among the most important building blocks of any kind of future breakup or you know future society we might want to have that's on more solid financial footing. Because right now, I think we're on very much quicksand. Before I go on, let me say a quick thing that will help a lot of you and you know who you are. If you are in business and you're getting buried by your competition online, then build your brand, your reputation, and your lead flow with digital marketing by Persist SEO, our great sponsor. If you're a small local business, you're trying to compete against large companies in the service industry, increase your visibility with Persist SEO. Or if you have low or no leads coming in on a consistent basis, well, website search engine and conversion optimization can help move the needle to a more prosperous business model for you. If you're tired of cold calling, use your website as a lead generation engine. If you're not showing up for your services on the search engines, then get found with Persist SEO's expert search engine optimization. All you have to do is call 770-580-3736 or visit them at ineedseo.help for a free website audit and consultation. That's 770-580-3736 or ineedseo.help. Well, why is it that regimes around the world latch on to particular schools of thought it is not because they have taken a dispassionate look and decided 
this one has more internal coherence, so we're going to latch onto this one. <laughs> it's that this one gives us what we want. It's that this one justifies what we want to do anyway. So we like economists, which is the vast majority of them, who tell us that we need to be directing the monetary system. We like being told that. Modern monetary theory, MMT, came out of nowhere, out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I wouldn't say swept the boards because it hasn't swept economics departments everywhere, but there are a lot of politicians who signed up for it, not because they sat down and evaluated the merits of it. It's because it sounds like it's justifying what they want to do. So it's not that they don't listen to the Austrians because they've looked and said, well, I don't think that business cycle theory you have is quite accurate because what about the panic of 1819 or something? It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with that. It's entirely self-interested. I would put in terms of, you were talking about people learning monetary policy or learning about money. In your piece, you recommended a few sources. Now, I want to link on my show notes page to a few things. First, your blog post. Secondly, that George Selgin paper on the true record of the Fed. Thirdly, for people with more technical turn of mind, I would put Guido Holzman's journal article called Optimal Monetary Policy, which is just absolutely hardcore and unforgiving and uncompromising. I would start there, but then really, honestly, for the average person to get a grip on what's really happening with quote-unquote monetary policy, what you need to do is just, as you say, understand money. If you just is understand this? money, then you can see through whether or not we really need quote-unquote monetary policy. And so... The great starting point for so many of us was that simple little book, What Has Government Done to Our Money? I mean, we've had other works since then that have been great, but I think that's as good a place to start as any. Well, you mentioned the idea of economists serving as court economists to the powers that be. And there's a critique on both the left and the right of that, which essentially says economics isn't real. It's not a real science or discipline. It just exists to provide pseudo-intellectual cover for various political programs. So right. MMT exists to provide the big government, big spending types, and Austerian Austrians exist to provide cover for Coke industry yes. capitalists. You right. want the poor to be ground under the wheels of capitalism. And I think there's some validity to that critique. I think a lot of economists have served as that. But what's gone missing, I think, in the field of economics is the idea that production proceeds consumption. In other words, we've spent the last hundred years in the field of economics trying to figure out how to gin up demand for stuff, how to make money and credit cheaper so that people will buy more and demand more. And that has become essentially a monomaniacal focus of so-called monetary policy. And the left politicians love this because they love the idea that deficits don't really matter, that government spending can be largely or almost unbound, and that we can get all kinds of things we want now politically by paying for goodies later on, kicking the can down the road. Social Security is an excellent example of that. The people who passed the Social Security Act over 100 years ago are now all, or, well, no, not quite 100 years ago, are all long dead. And at the time, there were 40 workers to every recipient. Now there's two or three workers to every recipient, and the bill is going to come due. So that's an example of political expediency where you vote for something now and get the benefit of giving people free stuff where the cost comes far later. So in economics, a lot of what we could call, I guess, neo-Keynesian or Krugmanite economists today, that's basically their job. Their job is to provide political cover for politicians who just want to gin up more demand. 
But as we saw in spades during COVID, demand without supply doesn't work, right? We need people at work producing goods and services. We need capital investment to make those goods and services cheaper. And what we desperately need is deflation. This is an absolute dirty word in demand-side Keynesian economics. So there's a real split here between, I think, two irreconcilable views about how you view money in the monetary system and its purpose. And that split mirrors or dovetails, I suppose, some of the political splits out there in this country, some of that divide, call it red or blue, whatever you want to call it. So it really is an interesting time when you've got irreconcilable views on the purpose of money and how money ought to work and operate. I mean, what's the foundation for America as a country at this point? Yeah, it's basically an economic arrangement, and it still works better than most places. We still have a vast trade system. You know, the dollar is still by far the least dirty shirt in the laundry. But beyond that, I mean, if we lose that, if we lose the economic arrangement, which is America 2023, to let's say, a real economic downturn, at least on the level of that of 2007, 2008, then I think we've lost the one little strand, the one thing tying us together. And all the social issues, all the lack of cohesion in this country will be laid bare in ways I don't want to think about. So it's better to be proactive, I think, on these questions. And what we desperately need is... 10 or 15 Ron DeSantis's out there operating their own laboratories, their own states, thinking about what they can do in terms of a dollar or a gold repository, using cryptos or whatever it might be to protect their citizens against some sort of crisis at the federal level with the dollar, with debt, with entitlements, with whatever it might be. So I'm far more interested in what can be done at the state and local level than trying to fix DC, which as you mentioned at the top of the show, I think is unfixable. It's too far gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even if these state-level experiments don't work as we hope they do, they get people thinking and talking about money, that maybe there could be a problem with the money. And now this isn't 100%, it's not an apodictic law, as Mises would say, but it's a pretty good generalization. Whenever you find yourself being told on some issue that there's only one really respectable position to take and that everything else is just crazy crankishness, you're almost always onto something. So during COVID, it was crazy crankishness to think that maybe they were not being honest with us about the way the numbers were being calculated, or if you thought ventilators might not be such a good idea initially, that made you crazy. Or if you weren't sure masks would work, you were obviously crazy and weren't entitled to an opinion. Or on so-called climate change, if you aren't convinced by it, or you think the results will be manageable, or you're not convinced that up to now, the earth has magically and by an amazing coincidence been the optimal temperature. And now suddenly this is going to be not optimal. There's no respectability there. As soon as you get into things like that, and of course, if you say, I think gold or some other type of commodity like this makes for a better monetary system, they don't debate you. They don't say, oh, well, that didn't really work. You're just completely dismissed. And that almost always tells you you're on the right track. Because what they say about gold is all phony and fake and their arguments are dumb. And I have gone over them quite a bit on my little podcast here over the course of thousands of episodes, but there's nothing to it. They're all dumb arguments meant to intimidate you into not looking further. And when somebody's trying to win an argument by intimidation, that means you keep looking, you keep digging, you keep reading, you keep studying because you're onto something. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And as a matter of fact, I think this dumbing down of the American population is intentional. I think it's easier to control a less educated people. And we may have more degrees today than our great-grandparents. I'm not so sure we know more. And I'm certain we don't know more about money. I would argue that our great-grandparents understood money conceptually far better than we do. And they also understood the idea of a return on money yeah. put away in an investment account. I guarantee you they understood the way money and interest and compounding interest and these things work better than us. So we're convinced that we're the smartest people who ever lived. I'm not sure that's right. true. Well, for one thing, if your head is filled with a lot of information and knowledge about, I hate the word paradigm, but let's say a faulty paradigm in economics, okay, yeah, you have a lot of knowledge, but it's all BS, right? It starts from the wrong premise. And so it's, I don't care that you have a lot of that in your brain. But secondly, another reason they have to convince us, don't even look at the monetary question, citizen, we have experts in charge of that, is that we might notice that in this day and age, if you want to simply do something as innocent as save for the future, they've made that impossible. Because even if they manage to keep price inflation to 2% a year, the point is the cumulative effect of that between now and your retirement is such that your pile of these dollar bills is going to be decimated in terms of its purchasing power, even if they keep it to 2%, because again, it accumulates. Well, furthermore, well, you might entertain the thought that, hmm, what did people do in the old days? Well, in the old days, and here's the caveat, when gold and silver coins circulated as money, they either held or increased their value. So if you wanted to save for the future, all you had to do was accumulate them. Now, yes, if you wanted to get a higher return, you could also invest that money, but you always had that conservative option of just holding on to them. You don't have that conservative option today. So what do you have to do? You have to go into the stock market. Most people don't have the knowledge to know what they're doing there. They have to do all kinds of risky things that they're not prepared to do just to break even. Now, is this? this is a grossly immoral system. And so the way you paper it over is you have a lot of technical calculus and this and that showing that we need to have so-and-so running this and that because otherwise we'll have this or that problem. Well, yeah, that's a smokescreen to get people off the track. But get on the track and you'll realize that the current system is not beneficial to the average person. It is beneficial to certain established interests. And by an interesting coincidence, it seems to persist. Well, it goes to this deeper question. What's the role of economics? Like any social science, it should make us better off. It should help us understand the world. It should make us wealthier, happier, healthier. So what are they doing in the PhD program across the street at Auburn University? They're studying vector calculus, right? Yeah. So vector calculus was of not much use in 2005 when strippers and taxicab drivers were buying four condos in Las Vegas with no documentation and no money down so that they could turn around and become the new emperors in the unlimited money game. Well, a couple of years later, we found out who was an emperor and who wasn't. And a lot of people lost their shirts. A lot of people lost their homes. A lot of people lost all kinds of things, even as admittedly brilliant people like Ben Bernanke were telling us that everything was okay and that he didn't see a housing crisis ahead. So I'm sure Ben Bernanke could, in his youth anyway, perform vector calculus, but that didn't stave off the housing crisis. No, and, and you know what this also feeds into is this mythology people have, and it's like wishful thinking of the all-knowing and all-wise regulator. I know it's comforting to think that 
there is a certain class of person out there who, if given the right amount of power, could stave off catastrophe. But this is just a fantasy that people use to comfort themselves with. And the 2008 meltdown is a great example because what is the chief regulator of the financial system? The Federal Reserve is the chief regulator of American banks. And leading up to that, the chairman of the Fed did not see a problem. So what happened to your all-knowing wise regulator? Or I like to point out that on the eve of that crisis, on the state and federal level, we had 115 regulatory bodies, which in one way or another were given the task of regulating the financial system. So I'm supposed to believe that that was inadequate. If we had had 116 institutions, then we would have staved this off. No, the thing is, they're trying to regulate their way out of a problem that has already been set in motion. I mean, once the Fed artificially creates all this credit, there's no regulator who's going to be able to fix that. The horse has left the stable. You can't regulate your way out of that. But everybody wants to believe there must have been some repealed regulation that caused this. No, there is. So they desperately, frantically search for some regulation that was repealed. None of it's relevant to what happened. But they have to believe this, that some wise person like themselves could have fixed this thing if only he'd had the power to crack a few more skulls. That ain't how it works. Well, and then when the bad thing does happen, the entire economics profession gears up to try to prevent the actual corrective, which is the recession. Right. What we actually need is a recession. And if we just leave things alone and allow bankruptcy and insolvency processes to happen, if we allow capital to be reevaluated and given its new value and allowed it to be sold to new investors, then the pain of any collapse, of any correction, of any recession, or even of a depression will be shorter than it otherwise would be. And yet the entire economics profession during any crisis exists to make sure that the one corrective is not allowed to happen. Yeah. Well, Jeff, on that note, I'm going to point out that on my show notes page for this episode, that'll be tomwoods.com slash 2290-2290. I'm going to put several links up that I mentioned, including a link to your piece. And I have a couple of, of course, what else, free eBooks related to this topic. So I do have one that I'm quite pleased with called Our Enemy, the Fed. And so I actually bought the domain OurEnemyTheFed.com. So you can get that there. And I also bought, it was a little more expensive than that one, Jeff. This one cost me. I bought NationalDivorce.com. That is in the loving hands of Tom Woods. And that's where you can get my free ebook on that subject. So I think we are finished with our discussion Jeff, I don't know that we've given people, well, I guess we have given people kind of an action item is to brush up on this stuff so you can get out there in the world of ideas and elbow your way in and see what we can do. Absolutely. You're going to hear a lot of whataboutism on social media on this national divorce question. So you better be forearmed is forewarned. Thank you, Jeff. All right, Tom. Thanks. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.